Welcome back to the Comics Course. I am your ever-decomposing Professor Hamby, here in the office, simply waiting for time to consume me, as I'm one day found by a future TA, simply becoming compost among my books. As long as it's not me. No, it'll be for a good while to come yet. And that is my currently ill TA Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. But, just to make it clear that I'm not forcing her to work while she's on death's doorstep, she is very much in recovery, are you not? I guess. You guess. Well, we are going to get into Sandman in just a moment, but first I wanted to cover just a few little news stories that I think are worth mentioning. So, one news story that I wanted to mention was that Eileen kaminsky Crumb passed away, unfortunately. This was in late November, but since we last had both of us present, uh, have you ever heard of Robert Crumb? Uh, no. Seminal underground comics artist, uh, very famous for being, well, frankly, kind of infamous. And although not discussed nearly as much, his wife, Eileen Kaminsky Crumb, was also a pivotal figure in, like, San Francisco's uh, early underground scene, especially representing women's voices with early works like Twisted Sisters. So it's sad to see her pass away. In recent years, she focused more on her painting than cartooning, but definitely a voice that will be remembered and missed. Also, I saw that Mark Miller, Mark Miller you may know as the guy who did a whole bunch of comics that have been adapted over the years, and in fact, sold his catalog to Netflix. He is starting a new series with Netflix in mind called The Ambassadors, which will feature a contest. Basically, scientists in, I think, South Korea have discovered how to unlock the human metagene and make superhumans. So a multi-billionaire who owns this process is holding a global contest for six people to become the first metahumans. And there will be six people spread out from all around the world, obviously with an idea in mind that this will be marketed globally on Netflix. And frankly, it's kind of surprising that comic companies don't think about this more. (laughs) I mean, there have been some token efforts here and there, but they're usually pretty painful. You know, if they make an Irish superhero, they're going to be somehow luck-powered with shamrocks. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I remember a few years ago, uh, I believe it was Marvel hired a Chinese writer to create a Chinese superhero, and they were named, I think, Arrow, and they had air powers, and a bunch of Americans complained that they weren't Chinese enough. The character was Chinese. The powers don't have to be Chinese-themed. I mean, this, this, this is a very sort of direct form of racism, I feel like, you oh, know? very racist. But it happens to every country. You know, if they introduce a German character, you know, they fit some bizarre Teutonic stereotype. Mm-hmm. Where's the Norwegian character who's obsessed with K-pop? Which, you know, there are Norwegian teenagers right now obsessed with K-pop. Uh-huh. Just saying. But, you know, American characters don't have to have all their powers with the name of freedom in mind. Right. <laughs> you know, in fact, 
I mean, let's think about it. If the hero, if you have a new, if you follow the standard comics rules for non-American characters, if they come from the Deep South, they have to be Baptist and obsessed with deep frying everything. Um, and overly religious. Well, that's why I said Baptist. Well, Southern Baptist, specifically. Okay. If they came from, like, the American Northwest, uh, ooh, they could be, like, a cryptid, you know, like, the Bigfoot. Uh-huh. But they think tacos grow on trees. Exactly. And if they come from New York, they have to be Sicilian, and somehow they have mob-themed powers and just stand around and say, forget about it, mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. So, maybe we should, in fact, just make all global characters more like American characters and not have to be stereotypes. Yeah, how, how about we just let them be people? Now, in the vein of it might be interesting to see characters not made as stereotypes, frankly, Latin characters have not done much better with the big superhero companies, but a, a publisher named Chispa Comics is creating what they call Latinx Comics with an endeavor called The 13, with 13 new original characters that will launch in 2023, and then, based on popularity and all that, have ongoing and crossover titles. Ooh, that sounds interesting. Yeah. Now, it's not a company with the resources of, say, a Marvel or DC. We don't know what the writing or art's really going to be like. But we do have a preview of at least one of the covers, and it's pretty good. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. So, I'm curious and looking forward to it. So, that is the news, such as it is. Now, let's jump into the comics. Fables and Reflections is really just kind of a grab bag. It came along after Season and Miss, and it was just a few standalone issues that bridged two different real story arcs. So when they've been collected, they often have additional material thrown in to pad it out. Uh, Different one-shots that have been done and things like that. Now, I'm going to cover very briefly some of this that's included at the tail end here of the second volume of the Sandman Omnibus. But depending on which story we're talking about, some I'll cover in more detail than others. But only a couple of these really bear heavily on the overarching storyline. And thematically, they don't have much interconnectedness. So we're going to cover them for completion's sake, but bear with, these are more of standalone issues than things that contribute to the overall arc. But we start with Thermidor. Would you like to describe the cover? I don't really know how to describe that. Well, it's a hand holding up a head. There's a hand? Yeah, right up there. Oh. Oh, I see the fingers now. Yeah. Oh. And like this weird black and white etching. It's a pencil sketch style with lots of cross hatching. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very rough. Now, we'll talk about the title of Thermidor a little bit here. This story takes place during the French Revolution, mm-hmm. and something a lot of people don't think about in connection to the French Revolution was that they believed that they were not just getting rid of the aristocracy, but that they were getting rid of the whole irrational past, that they were going to build a new model for democratic civilization based on the principles of reason. Mm-hmm. And so they redid a lot of stuff. They got rid of the old measurement system. They adopted the metric system. They got rid of the Gregorian religious calendar and adopted one new of their own making. And I forget how many it had in it. It either had, I think, 16 or 20 months. But anyway, Thermidor was one of the months. 
and roughly overlapped with what we would call July. So, summertime. So these events are happening during the month of Thermidor by the new French calendar. I believe it's year two of the French calendar. So they're still executing people. Mm -hmm. And there's still very much a lot of political upheaval. Now, there's a couple of quotes that start this off. The first one is from William Shakespeare's All's Well That Ends Well. La Fue. They say miracles are past, and we have our philosophical persons to make modern and familiar things supernatural and causeless. Hence it is that we make trifles of terrors, ensconcing ourselves into seeming knowledge when we should submit ourselves to an unknown fear. Now this definitely speaks to the attitude of what was happening during the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. It was a time of terror and fear. Mm -hmm. Uh... The next one is from Rusticello of Pisa. I know the story you see. I'm writing it all down for you, so it'll be remembered. Gaiman often likes having one thing that's just right on the nose, and then another quote that's just kind of a toss-in. So our story starts June the 28th, 1794, in Witch Cross, England. Now, does that house look at all familiar for you there? That looks like the house from... Uh, the story of Sandman. It is. That, in a couple hundred years, becomes the house of Roderick Burgess. Oh. However, right now it is the house of one Lady Joanna Constantine. Oh. Who was created by Gaiman as a sort of homage to his good friend, Alan Moore, who created John Constantine. Mm. So he created this ancestor. This is his first time seeing her since they met in the tavern where she attempted to accost him and hobgandling. <laughs> where she said, the wandering Jew meets the devil. And he says, do you still think I'm the devil? And she's like, not if you are who I think you are. And he just goes, I am. He could probably look in her dreams, so he knows stuff. <laughs> so he offers her a deal. He says, I have a task that needs accomplished and I cannot interfere directly because it involves family. And she says, well, what will you give me? Gold? Property? He says, I don't have either, but I'll give you what's in my power to give. And so she agrees. And it's one of the ongoing mysteries that fans of Sandman have who want to know what did she get. Gaiman has never revealed it. Oh, damn. It's a great little mystery. So we jump into the story and we see these soldiers of the New Republic military with their gaudy pants. Look at the red, white, and blue striped pants. Ooh. But those were part of the New Republic military outfit. And Joanna Constantine, now dressed as a lowly servant girl, is walking down a back alley with a bag. And they accost her. What's in your bag? Maybe something we can take. We're kind of hungry. And she pulls out a severed head. Ooh. And she looks at it. And, and I love her little routine here. That's a strange trophy for a young citizeness to possess. To whom did it belong? This? This Aristo swine violated Anne Claire, my little sister three years gone. He had her, and his men looked on and laughed. The poor little thing took leave of her senses. 
And she just goes on and on, spitting in the face and taking on this manic grin and expression. <laughs> she's clearly having fun with this routine. Right. And they're like, she's nuts. She's mad. Send her on. But one of them grabs the gold earring hanging from the head's ear and cuts it off. Mm. She goes on and takes the head back up to her attic apartment and says to it, I am sorry. And it replies, it cannot be helped. The earring will bring him nothing but misery, and eventually it will come back to me. It has been stolen before now. Mm. And so she has to hide the head because they're going to come after her. Now that soldiers have seen her and the head is found missing, they will have a lead on her. So the soldiers are beating her up when somebody comes to take her to a sort of palace prison. Now, there's some interesting little bits here that happen where he's walking her through and they walk by a door with, instead of a window on it, jail bar sales. Mm -hmm. Jail bar sales. Jail cell bars. <laughs> I was like, that doesn't sound right. It wasn't. Somebody sticks his hand through the bars and goes, St. Just, hoy, is there a word from America yet? Am I to be freed? Word. Why should there be word, Master Payne? You're an embarrassment to them. The only way you will walk from here is when you begin the journey that permits no returning. Now, this is a historical figure. Are you familiar with the name Thomas Payne? I've heard of it, but my brain cells are not connecting where I've heard it from. Okay. Uh, Thomas Paine was a writer during the period of the American Revolution. He wrote an extremely famous work basically justifying the American Revolution called Common Sense. Oh, okay. He was very popular, and when the French began their revolution, he basically said, well, they're brothers in arms. I need to go over there and support them. And he did. And initially, he was very popular. However, when they began using the guillotine to just mow through aristocrats... They, were, they used that thing all the time. Oh, yeah. And he opposed the death penalty. He thought there should not be a death penalty. Fair. So he quickly fell out of favor with the French authorities... And he was never publicly charged, but he ended up being imprisoned. Now, the actual prison was not quite like they show it here. This was a converted noble estate, and in fact, there were not bars on the door. In fact, the doors were open, and the people that were imprisoned here, like Thomas Paine, were free to wander around the gardens and estate during the day, and oh. were only locked in their room at night. Oh, how brutal. However, he was supposed to be executed by guillotine himself. Mm. And their methodology they used was that they would have a list of who was going and go around and mark the outsides of the doors. And apparently a sympathizer erased his mark. Oh. So it got delayed while they figured out what was happening. And during that time, President Monroe was able to arrange for his release. The irony, of course, is that at that point he was still popular in the U.S., but after he came back to the U.S., he continued to espouse his personal philosophies, which by that point had fallen out of favor with Americans. He ended up dying in New York City, penniless and destitute. Oh. Yep. 
There's so many historical figures who've ended up that way. Yep. This is another little piece of gruesomeness that's actual historical detail. They would take the bodies of aristocrats who were executed with the blood pouring down from where their heads used to be and attach ropes into hooks in the body and do marionette shows with their corpses. Holy shit, I didn't know that, but honestly, that doesn't surprise me for that area of France's period. It was pretty gruesome. They they were interesting people during that time. Yep. Now, now into the story comes Master Robespierre. He was essentially the de facto leader of the French government and very powerful. And he wants to destroy the head. Because the head is a proof of magic. And they are leading the new age of reason, where there is no magic. Mm -hmm. And so if magic is to be found, it needs to be destroyed. So Joanna Constantine's in a bind. She's not willing to say anything. She has a dream. And in this dream, Morpheus shows up and gives her a cup of liquid to drink from a river that will let her remember the dream. And Jessamy the raven, who, who is his raven at this point, makes a recommendation and says, your son knew many songs. If he were to sing, mm -hmm. so now we know that the head is the head of his son, the oh. son of Morpheus, hence it being a family matter. Mm -hmm. Morpheus also goes to Robespierre and inspires Robespierre with an idea of where the head would be. Where do you hide a head when you don't want anybody to find it? In an entire room of heads severed from the guillotine. Oh. So she grabs Orpheus's head, this is the head of Orpheus, and tells him to sing. And he magically is able to awaken all the other heads and join their voices in a chorus, paralyzing everybody except Joanna, who's kept her hands over her ears. She manages to escape, and... And very short order after that, and this is true, uh, Robespierre, in fact, was executed in the month of Thermidor. Yep, people had enough of him. Meanwhile, she heads to Greece, where she finds an island where Orpheus's head has been kept since ancient times, and the priests look after him. And she says, should I come to visit you again? And he says, no. Mm. And she asks, have you seen your father? And he says, no, not even in my dreams. Oh. And says that if she talks to him again, to please ask him to come see him. Aww. So after that, we have August. Now, obviously, we have a theme here. Months are being used in titles. Yeah. We had Thermidor, and now we have August, which was actually listed at the back of the last issue as Augustus. But they actually ended up titling the issue August. And the reason for that split is that this story features... Octavian Augustus, the Emperor of Rome. Oh, damn. Uh, for whom the month of August is named. In fact, he was named it in his own lifetime. If you're not up or hip on your Roman history, <laughs> he was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Mm -hmm. He Julius Caesar was actually his granduncle, I believe, biologically. That sounds right. And he succeeded Caesar after Caesar's assassination and a period of unrest in the empire. Augustus has not been fond of the theater, but he calls on this little person, a dwarf, 
to help him basically pretend to be a beggar for the day. And they go out to sit in the city square and beg. And he reveals to the dwarf that he's doing this because an entity came to him in a dream and said that he represented a Ro Roman god, Terminus, the god of boundaries. And Terminus wanted to help Augustus, but Augustus was in danger because the gods could see Augustus's minds. But Terminus said that if he went and became a beggar for a day, the gods would not be able to see his thoughts. Okay. And basically the story unfolds that he doesn't want... How to say this? His adopted father, his granduncle, Julius Caesar, liked boys a lot. And when Augustus was 16, did bad things. Which back then probably would have been seen mostly as, well, men will be men. <laughs> but although Augustus loved him and revealed him, clearly also bore extreme antagonism. Mm -hmm. And he saw futures one future where Rome kept expanding and would conquer the entire world. Mm. But this is not what Terminus, the god of boundaries, wants. So, he stopped expanding, and it ultimately led to the decline and collapse of the Roman Empire. Damn. And this is actually a popular theory among Roman historians. And there is reason for it. I mean, Rome essentially worked, and this is an oversimplification, but kind of like a Ponzi scheme. Where they constantly had to conquer new lands to support this growing patrician class. Mm -hmm. So, cutting off the edges of the empire, it was a long, slow death, but it did in fact lead to the decline. And this purports that, that Augustus, uh, Octavius Augustus, knew that he would be doing this and did it on purpose. Hmm. Basically to destroy the empire that Julius Caesar built. It's a fun little story. And the kind of story that if you are a bit of a history nerd and you're just reading this comic book, you can have great fun with this standalone issue. Uh -huh. And that brings us to another one that's historically based. Three Septembers and a January. Mm. Most of this does not play into the larger story, but there are a couple of tidbits here. And this one, we open with despair, laying on the bed, watching a mortal man who is about to take a straight razor to shave himself or maybe cut his wrists open. I mean, she is despair. She's not there because the guy's happy-go-lucky. Yeah. And she decides to call to Dream and ask him to attend. And he does. She taunts him about their errant brother, and how if he played their games, maybe the brother wouldn't have left. And Dream gets pissed. So he puts the mortal to sleep, Joshua, and says, Who are you, Joshua? What makes you what you are? What do you dream? And he says, I am Joshua Abraham Norton, entrepreneur and inventor. And he dreams of his childhood in South Africa and everything that happened, including lots of bad luck he's had in his life. And how we came to America, a country without a king. And by the end of it, Morpheus says, Then I will give you a dream, Joshua. Then we cut to this landlady with a cane yelling upstairs. 
Mr. Dorton, have you got company with you? I thought I heard folks talking. Mr. Norton. Are you laughing at my voice? Yes. Okay. No, Mrs. Rutledge, I am alone, but I must request silence, if you please. I am drafting a proclamation. Oh, well, that's all right. That, what did you say, Mr. Norton? A proclamation, Miss Rutledge. Now I must hurry, I'm afraid. I'm taking it to the newspaper offices. The evening bulletin would be best, I think. Yes. A newspaper? Oh, dear. And then we see the guys in the newspaper office holding it. And I love this exchange. And who was he? I'd never seen him before, but he looked perfectly normal to me. Perfectly polite. Just gave me his letter and left. But, well, read it yourself. At the preemptory request of a larger majority of the citizens of these United States, I, Joshua Norton, formerly of Algoa Bay, Cape of Good Hope, and for the past nine years and ten months of San Francisco, California, declare and proclaim myself Emperor of these United States, and in virtue of the authority and me vested, do hereby order and direct the representations of the different states of the Union to assemble in the music hall of this city on the first day of February next, then and there to make such alterations in the existing laws of the Union as may ameliorate the evils under which the country is laboring, and thereby cause confidence to exist both at home and abroad in our stability and integrity. And it's signed, Norton I, Emperor of the United States. Oh shit, I didn't know it was that easy. I know, right? One second, I gotta go write me something. <laughs> so, one of the guys says to the other, So, what are you gonna do with this drivel? What do you think I'm gonna do? Isn't not obvious? I'm gonna print it. And so we see Emperor Norton, who, by the way, was a real person. Oh. And he became kind of this landmark of the city. He really believed himself to be emperor and was probably quite insane. But the people kind of adopted him in good cheer. And you'll see a bunch of things that happen in the story that are modeled off actual real-life events. Mm. So you see him outside giving his proclamations. Death shows up and says, What have you got yourself into? A contest. I can see that. With Delirium and the twins. But honestly, why? We don't play their games. You know that as well as I... And they have that big sister, little brother talk where she chides him. Of what the fuck this time. Right. And she says, I just hope you know what you're doing. I hope that same thing on occasion. (laughs) And have you ever noticed the only person he's ever shows humility around and just kind of down talks himself a little bit with is death. Mm -hmm. Everyone else, even destiny, he's got that ramrod straight up his ass through his spine. Uh-huh. But with death, he can actually make fun of himself a little bit. Uh-huh. She says, what have you done with that guy anyway? And Morpheus says, I have made him a king. Now we jump to September 1864, and some guy is yelling, damn, 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 And he's tearing up paper. And it turns out to be Samuel Clemens, who many people know better as Mark Twain who did live in the area at the time and might have known Joshua Norton, Norton the first emperor of the United States, to use his proper Don't title. Don't forget emperor. Right. So he takes him out to lunch, and we find out that Norton the first basically is destitute. He's poor, but people give him places to stay. The city actually gave him a uniform. Damn. And he's become kind of a tourist attraction in a way. When you're so insane, you're a tourist attraction. Right. Now, Dream is watching them, and Delirium shows up, 
This time she looks Chinese and we find out that she's been visiting the brothels and opium dens in Chinatown. She says of Joshua, he should be mine, but he isn't, is he? And Dream says, no, he's not. His madness keeps him sane. In other words, he has a delusion, but he's not delirious. He may have this delusion about being emperor, but within that framework, it keeps him stable and functional. His dream keeps him going. And this is part of the point. Delirium, despair, and desire all are having this contest to see who can control him. And they are upset that Dream thinks that he's better than them. But he's, in fact, given this guy a dream that keeps him away from all their realms. Not Delirium, even though he's mad. Uh, we see a scene here where this family approaches him and buys some of his imperial currency from him for money. So that's kind of how he lives. And then we get a scene where he goes to this den to meet with this dead ghost that's been raised up by Desire. And Desire is, through this proxy, offering him a mansion and these beautiful women who are rich and he can have whatever he wants. But he refuses it. He says, I am the emperor of the United States. It is true that my rent is but 50 cents a week. It is true that my clothes were a gift from the city council. I exchange federal currency for my own, and thus I live. Many restaurants and eating houses now accept my script. Which is basically, they take his script as a charity so he can eat. That's and, so creepy. And he says, this is my city and my country. They treat me well here. Aww. And the proxy for Desire says... But you could be a real emperor, goddammit. You can have anything you want. And he says, I am content to be what I am. What more than that could any man desire? So he's not giving in to the realm of desire either. Mm. He's not giving in to despair, desire, or delirium. Now, desire's mad about this. And the, here's the little throwaway line that feeds into the bigger story. She says, as desire drives away in a cab with her ghost proxy, she says, he wants subtle, he'll get subtle, just watch me. She's referring to Morpheus, who kind of mocked her. She says, not here, not with Norton, but I'll make him spill family blood. I'll bring the kindly ones down on his blasted head one day. Damn, they mad, they big mad. And of course, she was the one that prompted the events with Rose Walker. This is... The event that leads her to decide when she sees an opportunity to attempt to get Morpheus to kill Rose Walker as the amulet. To spill family blood. And bring the kindly ones down on him. All this over a madman. Now, the kindly ones can destroy the endless. Now, it does not truly destroy their eternal nature, but it destroys that incarnation of them. Which can't be pleasant. No, I mean, essentially that person dies and then a new person shows up to fulfill the office. Mm -hmm. So it is still death. Finally, in the end, he dies. He's an old man. It's January 1880. He passes away and Despair and Morpheus are there. Morpheus says, here, I have something for you to remember this little challenge by. What is it? A statuette. They sell them in this town. Mementos for travelers from distant parts of the emperor of this land. From the distant parts. Oh, I think this is kind of miswritten here a little bit. Anyway, he hands her a little statuette of Norden himself. He says, keep it despair. Take it back with you to the world behind the mirrors. Keep it as a souvenir. Should I thank you? For the lesson, perhaps, if for nothing else. And she says, 
What lesson? She has not grokked what Dream has tried to teach them here, which is delirium, despair, desire. These come from dreams. Mm. Without dreams, you can't have any of those things. And that is why he is superior to them and more powerful. So Death shows up and walks off with him. And then we get The Song of Orpheus. This was published as a standalone special. I'm not going to go in great depth, but we now meet Orpheus when he was a young man. And this is a retelling of the story of Orpheus. Mm. So he was alive in Greek times, and he is about to have his wedding day. And he meets his mother, Calliope. Remember Calliope? Uh-huh. His mother, the muse, and his father, Morpheus, back in ancient Greece. Unfortunately, oh, but before we get to that, we meet the family. Oh. Notice somebody there we haven't seen before. Uh-huh. And big armor. We now meet Olethros, mm. which is Greek for destruction. The prodigal brother. This is our first time actually finding out who the prodigal brother is. Mm-hmm. He is destruction. So Orpheus gets married. A drunk satyr chases and assaults his wife, oh. who gets bitten by a snake and dies. One hell of a wedding night. Yep. Orpheus goes to demand of Morpheus that he do something to resurrect his wife which it's not in Morpheus's power to do, and he's not going to attempt to intercede on his aunt's part for Orpheus, a.k.a. death. He goes to meet Olethros, and we get to meet some of his character. He's a big man with a lot of power, but very lighthearted and jovial. And he does create an entrance for Orpheus to go meet death, which he wanders in and finds an apart modern apartment with goldfish and flowers and old stuff chair that's starting to fall apart and a mug with a heart on it and a teddy bear and she shows up in the modern clothes with the yonk and the of course idea is that death must be timeless death may touch all parts of time at once mm-hmm. and Orpheus is kind of freaked out so she redoes the realm to be more of his what he would expect from Greek mythology and his time and place in the world. The story proceeds that he goes to the underworld. He challenges Hades and Persephone for the soul of his dead wife. And he sings a song that makes the Furies weep. The Furies being another aspect of the Fates, also known as the Kindly Ones. Hades says, okay, I'll let you have your wife back. But there are rules. There are always rules. Oh, it's this story. Right. And it's a well-known one. Orpheus has to leave, not look back. He gives into temptation at the end and sees that Hades, in fact, was not scamming him. And his wife fades away. So he's depressed. And in chapter four, we see him now well into middle age sitting around just playing songs for the animals who listen to him. Calliope comes to visit. She has now split up with Morpheus, probably the state of Orpheus being part of their conflict because Morpheus won't do more for his son. Morpheus feels like this is a a mortal matter, not for him to get involved in. And he ends up wandering and not paying attention to where he is and ends up with the Mayanids. Are, Are you familiar with the Mayanids of Greek mythology? I don't think so. The Mayanids were supposedly a cult of all women, although some historical information indicates that's probably not true. 
who, according to myth, would get completely drunk on wine and cover themselves in the blood of animals and were sort of a mystery cult dedicated to Dionysius, the god of wine. Mm. And they would get drunk and literally tear people limb from limb. Many people believe that this may actually be the origin of the werewolf myth in Eastern and sorry Western Europe. I was supposed to say I think I have heard of that story because of that connection. Right. Uh, now, actually, the cults were more generally dedicated to Zagreus, which was another aspect of Dionysius, and who Dionysius was to become when he became the ruler of the firmament after the death of Zeus, and the blood they bathed with, bathed with is thought by many scholars to be a misrepresentation of a practice where they slaughtered an ox and drank its blood. And they believed it was the form of Zagreus transformed because Dionysius Zagreus was a shapeshifter. Mm -hmm. And it does not take a lot to see this as a pretty close translation of the Christian practices of the death of Christ, the drinking of his blood as a sacrament, all that. Many people believe that this Zagrian mystery cult heavily influenced the birth of Christianity and its practices. Mm. Anyway, they're not getting into that here. What they get to here is the Mayanids kill him and rip him apart, eat his heart, and throw his head into a river where it washes out towards the sea, where Morpheus finds it. Now, Morpheus does make arrangements for priests to watch over him, but comes to say goodbye and says that he will never see his son Orpheus again and just leaves. Damn. Like the stone-cold emo shit that Morpheus is. Yep. Pride, pride, pride. Now, we'll go through the rest of the contents of this pretty quickly. We have a short story about the last satyr, that, and it features desire. It's a fun little story, but it was meant to be a sort of filler piece. Then we have one called Death, A Winter's Tale. Now, Death was definitely the standout character that exploded from Sandman. She ended up being the star of a number of solo works, mm. written by Neil Gaiman and others. And one of the things interesting in this story is she talks about how, towards the beginning of the universe, being Death was fun. Things were curious to die. It was all new to everything. But as time went on, people got more and more depressed about it and started resenting her. And we see that she went through some of that same trouble that other endless, like Morpheus, uh, have. You know, in the sound of her wings, Morpheus was depressed about going back to his duties. And we see that maybe she was in part sympathetic because she has once gone through this herself. And what ultimately turned it around for her was she realized that people need something positive mm -hmm. at the end. And they need her to be that chipper thing as they make the transition mm -hmm. to the Sunless Lands. And it's a nice little story. Yeah, that's sweet. Then we get to another Desire-centric story that was published in something called How They Met Themselves. And this, Gaiman is having fun with the Pre-Raphaelites. Now, the Pre-Raphaelites were a group of painters with a particular set of philosophical leanings, and I'm not going to get too much into that, but there are some personalities here that it's worth discussing. Particularly, there are two characters in here 
that are, well, really three that are artists in their own right. One is William Holman Hunt. He's never referred to by name, but he was kind of the most loyal of the pre-Raphaelites. Over time, he continued sticking with the principles, even when others kind of wandered off from it. And he was an, he was an ass. He kept on an affair with one of his models named Annie Miller, and she's mentioned by name in the story. Mm. Uh, and yeah, he, he buried his wife with the poems he wrote for her, and then ten years later dug it up to get the poetry back oh. to publish it. What the hell? I, he was a pretty creepy guy. Annie Miller's mentioned. There is also a character in here who's only referred to as Algernon, but there's absolutely no doubt it's Algernon Charles Swinburne. He is mentioned in part because, oh, and I will point out, this is a portrait of him done by Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Oh. It's definitely the basis for the art that's used of him in the story. Oh, yeah, definitely. Which will, yeah. And he makes a reference when he meets Desire. Desire only identifies her himself as having a name starting with D. And Swinburne wrote a poet poem called Dolores. Notre Dame des Sept Dolores. And he was a bit of a scandalous figure in his time. He wrote about what we would now call kinky subjects. I know. But uh, definitely not the kind of guy you invited over to the family dinner. Mm, I see, I see. Uh, I'll go ahead and read the poem just for fun. And you'll see why it probably made Gaiman think, actually, I can't read the whole thing. It's long. Maybe I'll do as an extra some point. It's a long poem, but I'll read the start of it. Cold eyelids that hide like a jewel, hard eyes that grow soft for an hour, the heavy white limbs and the cruel red mouth like a venomous flower. When these are gone by with their glories, what shall rest of thee then what remain, O mystic and somber Dolores, our lady of pain? Very much works with desire. And if you look at how Swindon is represented here, that definitely looks like it's off the Rossetti uh, portrait. Definitely. They wander off, they have a mystical encounter with other versions of themselves, and of course there's a lesson that when Hunt is made to confront what he most loves, it's himself and his art. And he doesn't really love anything else. Mm -hmm. And there's a little bit of commentary maybe there for the nature of being with an artist. Maybe. So that wraps the first, well, the second omnibus of Sandman. What do you think at this point? Fun. I'm really enjoying it. Good. Uh, and we have a major story arc coming up next, but that's for next week. Right now, class is dismissed. Woo! Okay, class is dismissed, but you are not. I have a quick info dump for you. If you want to listen to more of the podcast, we are available everywhere we are on google play apple Podcasts, stitcher even on youtube additionally you can find me on social media on mastodon twitter tumblr tiktok i probably have a copy of the podcast on an ipod mini in a hobo's pocket in san francisco that's right time travel do you want to know where you can find all these links you can find them on my link tree. That is L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E forward slash Prof Hamby, P-R-O-F-H-A-M-B-Y, 
It is the comics course. And don't forget your homework.